0: Matthew chapter 27, we'll be looking at uh, the section of Scripture, verses 26 through 61 this afternoon. So my, my goal is to, I'm kind of re- just reflecting upon the death of our Lord. I realize we're in the series on Luke, and I didn't take the time to transition the slide. You're reading from Matthew, not from Luke, um, as we consider the departure of the King. So this morning, we, we consider Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And although he was praised and honored, it was merely the beginning of the end of his earthly ministry. And so we skip ahead now to um, his mocking, his crucifixion, and his death. And, and as we come to a passage like this that is so familiar to us, we really want to engage our, our minds and our hearts, we want to slow down, let us rely upon the Holy Spirit to, to move us with kind of a fresh understanding of Christ's death. We want to understand the event itself, the crucifixion, in order that we might better grasp the value of his atoning sacrifice. So we don't just glory in the cross and in, in, in the gore. Right? As if that's that's what it's about, just reflecting upon the torment of our Savior. But it's to give us a, a better understanding of the value of his atoning work, the sacrificial atonement. So I'm jumping ahead to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, where we read, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those who, of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So that's why we want to consider the significance of this single sacrifice this afternoon. Yes, it was painful. Yes, Jesus suffered physically, but the spiritual reality was much worse than the physical reality. On the cross, Jesus bore the full weight of the wrath of God in our place. And Jesus suffered the pains of hell as he hung upon the cross. And so the Son of God was isolated from everyone, including his Father, in order that anyone who believes in him might be saved. That's the precious truth of the cross. That's the gospel message for us to hear this afternoon. So before we read a portion of this scripture and then comment on it, let's ask the Lord for his help and understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and this time that we have to study it. I pray that we would look upon this passage with um, with understanding, moved by your spirit, uh, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we are changed into the image of your son. Lord, help us to respond to the grace that we see depicted on the cross. By offering our lives as a living sacrifice. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, soften our hearts to respond to this truth and obedience and to ultimately be convicted and convicted of our own sin that led Jesus to the cross and the comfort of the gospel that gives us victory and union with our Lord and Savior. It's in his name we ask it, amen. Well, let's begin by looking at verses 26 through 44. Uh, then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a, to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he, could not, uh, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So this first section, uh, I just want to consider the mockery of the king. It begins with the Romans mocking him. And I, I went back to verse 26 just because of the reference to the scourging of Jesus. It's a very brief reference there. And yet what we know of scourging is horrendous, and Maybe some of you are are unfamiliar with that. Um, A scourging was when a Roman soldier would take a whip, uh, which was oftentimes called a cat of nine tails, and it had multiple strands. cat of nine tails may imply that it had nine strands or or thereabout. And and at the ends of these strands, um, these leather strands, would be attached pieces of bone and, and metal shards that could rip into the flesh of the skin on a person's back. So the soldier would whip the convicted criminal 39 times. And they did this because 40 times was considered to be the number that would kill him. So they did it one less so that he would survive. And in fact, they did oftentimes kill people during the scourging. So it was a horrendous thing. And the people, um, would, the original audience would have been quite familiar with this would have understood, just by reading that word, what Jesus endured, or at least they would have known what it entailed. So he's then follow, following that physical torture, he is mocked, and this, although there is some pain involved in this next section where he's beaten and he's spit upon and even the crown of thorns is, is put on his head, most of this is not meant to... to to be painful but it 's meant to just be a mockery of him. Um, you see in verses twenty eight and twenty nine they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him they They clothed him like a king, although the that robe would have been purple, and the other gospels call, say that this robe was purple um, it's it 's possible that it was sort of a it obviously had a color that looked like either reddish or purple, or as it was placed on him, the purple garment began to fade into red because it was soaked in his blood from his back. So there's a parody that's taking place here as, as Jesus is, is being uh, mocked. He's scourged and then um, dressed up as a, a, a faux king with a scarlet robe, a crown of thorns, and a reed in his hand. And then they take that reed and they, they smack him on the head with it. So this mockery of worship is offered by the Roman soldiers and, and yet all the while Jesus can expect to be enthroned above with a true crown of gold, right? that he will have the mighty scepter in his hand as Psalm 110 verse two says, and he'll be clothed in the garment of the high priest as we saw in this image of the son of man. In Revelation chapter one verse 13, he was wearing the high priestly garments there in that imagery. So he knew what awaited as they mocked him in this way. In the crucifixion, we get to verses 32 through 37. Um, again, he's, this parody, this mocking continues as they take him along this route, which is sort of a a mock parade that they would have given to an, the emperor. Uh, the, they would have honored the emperor. Here they're telling him to go out and to carry his cross uh, to the, to the to Golgotha. Now, typically, the the criminal, the convicted criminal, would be the one carrying that um, cross beam. It would be just one of the beams. One beam would be at the site already, probably even erected in its place, and the other beam would be carried um, by the criminal. In this case, Jesus either was too weak from the scourging uh, to carry it, or for for whatever reason, they called upon someone else to carry it for him. Simon, by name, the Cyrene. Um, and so, upon arriving at the scene of the the crucifixion, that beam would have would have been combined with the other beam, and either in a T shape or a like a, a capital T or possibly a lowercase T with a, a portion above. We know somehow the the sign that is placed above his head is 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 on something. And so, the the depictions of the cross looking more like a, a lowercase T with a, a portion at the top is 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 probably. Um, trying to make sense of how you could place a sign of capital in it. Uh, if, uh, if oftentimes crosses were depicted as simply a capital T's, the the head would still be a rising above the, the high beam. Now they also would have um, oftentimes used rope to tie around their feet and their wrists, and in this case Jesus, we know, was nailed to the cross um, to increase the, the cruelty and the, the pain he would have experienced. Um, as, as his breathing became labored, uh, he would have had to lift up his body, placing more weight upon his feet, which would have obviously been excruciating as well. And that was ultimately how, they, how a person who was being crucified died was they suffocated. They were no longer able to endure the pain of lifting their chest up to breathe. They couldn't take a breath in, so they would just they would suffocate. Um, and so in this case, Jesus is doing that. Now, um, they oftentimes would even place a, a seat uh, for them to rest on um, or even a, a platform for their feet uh, to hold their, their feet up. To, but, but even that itself was not an act of compassion. It was to increase the amount of time that they could continue to lift themselves up and breathe. It would just increase the length of their crucifixion. And so there are accounts of of the crucifixion lasting several days. Um, But in this case, Jesus uh, would last six hours. We'll look at that in a a little bit. But this was a slow, painful process with with no relief. Um, And then in verse 34, you do find this wine and myrrh. These are the, the one elements of relief that are offered um, because it was, it was understood to be a painkiller. It, it was probably a very cheap wine mixed with myrrh. Um, it says here gall. Um, either way, it was some mixture that would have relieved the pain. And so Jesus refuses to receive any relief. Right? He, re, he, he takes a taste and then rejects it. Jesus will consume the cup in full measure. We didn't read this passage, but as we consider his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed this, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he understood that it was the will of the Father that he would drink this cup. Again, in verse 42, it says a second time he went away and prayed, My father, if if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found the disciples sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said, Sleep, take your rest later on. So anyways, he, he is very clearly reflecting upon um, the what he's experiencing now as he hangs on the cross. It's not, um, you know, the torment that awaited him, the physical pain and torment of the cross. As, as harsh as it was, as cruel as the, this form of punishment was, um, even Romans would not die in this way. Uh, it was too disgraceful to kill a Roman criminal on the cross. They, they reserved it only for foreigners. So Jews were, were hung on the cross um, but it wasn't the physical pain that led him to this kind of um, agony. It was the the fact that he was going to bear the weight of God's wrath. So before we reflect on that, let's consider as well what the Jews did. So he has the, the Roman scourging and the Roman mocking the soldiers that mocked him, and then he has to endure as the, the Jews also Engage in the mockery. Verses uh, 38 to 44 reflect upon that. the The robbers were probably insurrectionists associated with Barabbas. Um, typically, a a thief would not be crucified. So the fact that they were both crucified is indicative that they were probably violent criminals. Although the fact that Jesus was not violent and he's hanging in between them may be that, that they had had loosened their standards that day. Um, but But they may have been connected to Barabbas and and been violent criminals. Um, Verses 39 through 40 reflect on these Jewish passers-by who are wagging their head and adding their mockery into it. And then you have the three distinct groups who make up the Sanhedrin, mentioned in 41 through 43. Uh, The chief priests, scribes, and elders who mock him with their, their statements. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Uh, probably they're reflecting upon what they heard on Sunday right, during the triumphal entry, Hosanna, which means save us. He's, they're, they're, they're mocking him by saying, hey, the crowd was calling you to save them earlier. If, if, if that's true, why can't you save yourself now? If he was incapable of, of saving himself, then surely he was incapable of saving anyone. But it was due to his commitment to save others that Jesus refused to come down from the cross. And to save himself would have been the condemnation of others, even those who might have joined in in the mockery and been conformed. We, we know that is true of one of the robbers, right? Both robbers were mocking him, we read here in verse 44, but at least one of them repented. Only one of them did repent. We read in Luke 23, verses 40 through 43. So France writes, when the Roman soldiers mock him as king of the Jews and the Jewish crowds mock him as temple builder, savior, king of Israel, and son of God, they speak truer than they know. They're mocking him, and yet the words that they're saying are actually true. You hear the gospel. You hear the the truth of, of the identity of Christ in their mocking. Gospel writers, it's interesting to note here, as, as I've described what was taking place on the cross, a lot of the words and language we get about the cross doesn't come from the gospels. What we know about what happened, right, the torment that he experienced and, and what it all entailed, what the scourging involved, it doesn't come from the writings themselves. It's extra-biblical accounts taking place in public. And so we may not grasp the horrendous scene um, of this event, but apparently that's, that's not the critical component for us to understand. And in a very familiar to the original reader without sensationalizing the account, as is so often done, right, where we want to just kind of elaborate and sensationalize the details of the crucifixion focus upon all of the blood that was shed. Um, The Gospels never really focus on these physical pains. They seem to highlight over and over again the spiritual torment that he faced. So again, yes, Jesus felt pain, but God probably wasn't waiting for Mel Gibson to adapt it into a horror flick for us to really get the the crucifixion. And I don't think the church was at a loss prior to that film being made um, to understand what the cross really means. So Christ suffered truly, but far more important, the pains of hell for us. He took our sin upon himself. That's what we should be focusing on when we think about the cross. Let us hate and let us grieve over our sin that held him there. Well, let's look at the next section here as we reflect upon his death, verses 45 through 61. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Amen. Well, this opening section is a description of how he's forsaken by the Father. Uh, You might be aware there's seven final sayings of Jesus or final words that he Uh, shares while he's on the cross. In Luke 23, verse 34, he declares, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Probably the first statement he makes. In Luke 23, verse 43, he says, Today you will be with me in paradise as he promises the robber who repents and who uh, confesses faith in Christ. He promises to be with him in paradise. He also makes a statement to uh, John. And his mother in John twenty nine or John nineteen verse twenty seven. Dear woman, here is your son, and son, here is your mother. And then in in cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a really direct quote from Psalm twenty two verse one, and it's a unique ad- address. He says, My God, when Almost every other account, he's, he's, when he prays or addresses God, he addresses him as my father. But here he says, my God, my God. It's a reflection of that sense of abandonment. that He truly was abandoned when he experienced the weight of the wrath of God in our place. His feeling indeed matched reality. The father had turned his face away at that moment. So Jesus experienced genuine anguish. One commentator said, if I were coldly logical, I could point out that Jesus knew the answer to his own agonized cry. He knew why. He had known during his earthly ministry. He had known with awful clarity in the Mount of Olives. His question is not a plea for intellectual understanding, but an expression of agony, that overwhelmed understanding. So we shouldn't Stress about what he's actually what he's saying here or try to minimize, you know, that, that sense of agony that he experienced. He knew why he was going through it. He wasn't left in the dark when he made the commitment to redeem us from our sins. He knew full well he was in full control. But in that moment of agony, he cries out in despair. So when he who knew no sin became sin for us, he experienced the unmitigated wrath of God. The punishments of hell include the separation from God's love. It's not a separation in the sense from his presence. God is present even in hell, He's omnipresent, but it's that separation from his favor, his love, his grace. So Jesus's only hope is in the God who had just forsaken him and he cries out to him. And he'll express confidence in the reunion with his father just before his death. So in John 1928, we know that he also declared, "At some point on the cross, I am thirsty." And then right before he breathed his last, there's two statements he made. One recorded in John 1930, He said, "It is finished, which may be the, what Matthew is talking about here in verse 50 um, where he said he, he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Or it may also be what is recorded in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we don't know how long the son was physically or, or spiritually feeling that sense of abandonment, but it, it does seem that before he breathes his last, his father does come and, and rescue him. The crucifixion, for many, as I've said, lasted multiple days, but for Jesus, it lasted roughly six hours. We know, um, based on Mark fifteen twenty-five, that the crucifixion began at the third hour, which was 9 a.m. Uh, darkness came upon the land at noon, the sixth hour, and then he died at about the ninth hour. So there was darkness for that three-hour period. This would, al- would have also allowed, interestingly enough, as the darkness goes away, he's now got daylight, there's uh, three hours of daylight before his actual burial, um, which would have been required by Jewish law to not leave a man on the cross on the Sabbath. So they had to make sure that he was buried. So that leaves three hours there if he died at 3 p.m. and would have been buried uh, no later than 6 p.m. So it gives some, um, also some evidences in this passage, beginning with verse forty-five. The the darkness that's over the land. We we don't know the extent of this darkness. It doesn't describe it in detail. We don't know if it was a natural just cloud covering the land, um, or something more like what what was experienced by the Egyptians, where there was three days of of darkness where they couldn't do anything. They couldn't even see their hand in front of their face. Um, doesn't seem to be to that level here, um, but it, but it is probably a, an allusion to that experience of the Egyptians, right? It's an allusion to the judgment of God upon the people, upon the land. And um, even better, it parallels with what we read in Amos chapter 8, uh, verses 9 and 10, where we read, on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning. The the language there in Amos is almost identical to what Jesus experienced there. And again, that was a picture of God's judgment upon them. The darkness, though, ultimately ended when Jesus defeated darkness in his death on the cross. So... The other evidence that's given in this passage is verse 51, where the curtain was torn in two. Notice it was torn from top to bottom. God himself is the only one who could have done this. This thick curtain that separated the outer uh, temple court from the uh, Holy of Holies. In the temple court, the, the priests would have been in there daily um, doing their work, and yet only one day a year, the, chief, uh, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. Well, that curtain was then torn into representing God granting access for believers, that believers could um, could go and commune with God directly through the only mediator, Jesus Christ. Right? It's through his death that we have access to God through faith in Christ. You have also in the latter part of that same verse 51, an earthquake and rocks splitting, and then you have this curious account it's not recorded in any of the other gospels of resurrections. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after this, or after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It's um, a bit hard to understand, but when you combine it with the other <laughs> accounts of the resurrection, it, it seems to be clear that, he's, that Matthew here is including it as one of the witnesses, as an account of the evidence of what you know, that Jesus was accomplishing redemptive history here. But these resurrections probably didn't happen right at that moment. Seems that, well, it does indicate that they did not, they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, referring to Jesus. So It's not until Jesus was resurrected that they were resurrected and, and go out and, and are a witness in the city. Um, and they, they would have been saints who had fallen asleep. We don't know how long it died. I mean, it's very possible that this is referring to uh, s- saints that people would have read about in the Old Testament scriptures who had died and been buried in the region of Jerusalem. Um, but either, either way, they were another a- account of um, those who, or it was another evidence of what God was doing. We'll close, we'll consider this, this last thing, just thinking about the different witnesses, the eyewitnesses, that are described here in verses 54 through 61. You have the centurion and those who are with him who, whether they understood exactly what they were saying or not, they, they do speak the truth um, that truly this was the Son of God. They were filled with awe, but we don't know anything more than, than this one statement. Um, whether that was a confession of their faith in him, uh, we're, not, we're not clear upon. In verses 55 through 56, we have a description of these two women. And these same women are described in verse 61. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, uh, they're present there at his death. They're present at his burial. And they'll also be present at his resurrection in chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So, of course, the, the point of this is that they would not have been mistaken about which tomb they were to go to. They were, they were there all along often standing off in the distance during the crucifixion. They were there witnessing the burial, and they would come back uh, for his resurrection. But the burial provides another opportunity for a witness with Joseph of Arimathea. The fact that Matthew is giving names here is also indicative of the, of the reality, right? You, the original readers could have taken this and, and gone and talked to Joseph of Arimathea. They could have, they could have um, asked about these things. And this fulfills Isaiah 53 verse 9, instead of the disgraceful public plot that was generally allotted to those crucified, Jesus was given an honorable burial from a generous follower. Joseph was also, we learn, part of the Sanhedrin in Mark 15 and Luke 23. It it tells us that Joseph was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a part of the, the group that condemned him. Um. So he, it seems he feared for his life, but was a follower uh, from a distance. Again, uh, one commentator says this, it is, it is far better to cry why than not to cry at all. Reflecting upon Christ's cry of dereliction or cry of abandonment. It is far better to cry why than not to cry at all. It is better to protest of faith. Once we lose all hope that there is an ear to hear or a heart that is concerned, despair becomes absolute. So again, just reflecting upon this and, and for our own application, there's a, a proper place for lamentation in worship. I've talked about this in my prayer time as well, but it's, a, it's sorely undeserved, or underserved in the church today. Psalm 22 which seems to have been on the mind of Christ as he neared those final minutes, as he breathed his last, uh, the words that he's reflecting upon come from Psalm 22. He was probably thinking about the entire Psalm. Because we see from you know the beginning passage of lamentation, that would have been what Christ was experiencing and, and understood personally. And then also the thanksgiving that he looked he was looking forward to, but as we consider lamentation and thanksgiving that are reflected in Psalm twenty-two, it's it's proper to practice both. In the context of corporate worship, it's appropriate and good to practice them separately. To sing a song of lamentation, to sing a song of thanksgiving, it does. It's not as if we have to always think of thanksgiving as canceling out lamentation. You may be in a series, a season of lamentation, and those psalms that you can point to and reflect upon will be a bomb for you to know that you're not alone. The true lamentation anticipates thanksgiving that was sure to follow. And it looks forward with hope to that, uh, the fulfillment or the promises um, of the fulfillment so we can transition to thanksgiving at the proper time. Christ was not defeated on the cross. He was triumphant. Colossians 2, 14 to 15 says, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It was on the cross that he was triumphant over the rulers and authorities, disarming them and putting them to open shame. So Jesus was victorious because his sacrifice was not in vain. He was the perfect lamb who was slain, providing us with a perfect atonement. He fully satisfied the wrath of God so that we might receive his grace and peace. And that's why we sing songs of praise. And as we come back next week and consider the uh, resurrection, we'll continue to sing songs of praise to our Lord and Savior. Let's go to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, uh, this day to not only celebrate the triumphal entry of our Savior into Jerusalem, but also to reflect upon his death. Help us to not reduce the value or the meaning of the cross by simply focusing upon the physical anguish and torment. To make the connection to the spiritual realities that is really what all of the gospel writers emphasize. But to take these thoughts and to consider the, what is said about the cross in the epistles, and to reflect upon it this week with our families, to prepare our hearts to come back and to rejoice in, in the resurrection life, in the victory that Jesus has not only over sin, but also over death itself. That gives us great hope and confidence in our own resurrection. So help us to respond now with songs of praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is The Precious Blood.